Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John, and I'm so excited to welcome you once again to the Children's Story Hour. And I have Auntie Sue here with me. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. I'm happy to be here again, too. Aren't these stories exciting? Yes, they're wonderful. You know, some of these people have had such wonderful experiences. And you and I have been missionaries, but many years ago when I was a small boy, I grew up as a missionary child way across in the country we now call Malaysia. And, you know, we had so many exciting times there, and we were warned about the big snakes. I might tell some snake stories later, but I can remember walking around the house in the dark on the outside, barefoot, very slowly. I was so scared of snakes, and all of a sudden I trod on what I thought was a snake. I jumped and I screamed and I ran and I yelled and I came inside and I said, Daddy, I just trod on a snake and he got a torch and a big stick and we went outside and we found that I had trodden on a hose. I thought it was a snake. But you know, these stories are so exciting because they tell us about Jesus and his love. Now, boys and girls, keep your letters coming. Keep your drawings coming. We really look forward to seeing them. Do you know where to send them? Auntie Sue, you might have to help us here. You can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN, Australia Radio, PO Box 752, Morissette, 2264, New South Wales, Australia, or email at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au You can also check out the radio page on the 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au Thank you, Auntie Sue and boys and girls. We really look forward to hearing from you. And we would love to have a little prayer from you, Auntie Sue, before we start. Dear Lord, thank you for this story hour that tells us so much about your protection and love. And we are very happy to take it into our hearts. And may the children enjoy every word. This is our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now, sit down as we listen to some more stories from the Children's Story Hour. Hi, girls and boys. This is Uncle Alan, and I have a story for you, The Two Carolyns. Carolyn was a nice girl in many ways. She had shiny black hair and big, friendly brown eyes. And when she was dressed in her school uniform, you would have thought there wasn't a nicer girl in the world. But there were two Carolyns. One was the home Carolyn, and the other was the school Carolyn. The home Carolyn was left on the doorstep every morning and picked up every lunchtime when the school Carolyn came back. Now, the home Carolyn was a cross, pouty, grumbly, growly and disobedient Carolyn. The school Carolyn that everyone saw outside the house was very nice. Mother was worried almost to tears over her two Carolyns. 
What could she do? She thought it over and came up with a plan. Carolyn loved her school teacher very much. Indeed, by the way she acted, it seemed that she loved her teacher more than she loved her own mother. She would take her flowers and other pretty things, and teacher, only seeing the school Carolyn, thought she was always a very good girl. One day the school Carolyn came home and changed suddenly on the doorstep, as usual, into the home Carolyn. Her mother called to her as she came in. Would you please go round to the shop for some groceries? No, I don't want to. I'm tired, snapped the home Carolyn. But when she saw the way her mother looked at her, she'd suddenly decided to get changed and go. While she was gone, a visitor came to see Carolyn's mum. The visitor was shown into the sitting room and sat in a corner, out of sight. Carolyn returned. Here are your things, she said, throwing them down on the floor. Now I'm going out to play. But I'm tired, said her mother. Wouldn't you like to help me finish my work? No, I don't want to. Well, please lay the table for tea. Don't want to. But you must do something to help. Please lay the table, Carolyn. I hate laying the table, said Carolyn, slamming the door and putting on a pout that would frighten anybody. Grumbling loudly, she pulled the tablecloth from the drawer and spread it out in a rough and tumble sort of a way. Then she brought out the knives and forks, scattered them among a few dishes and started to walk off. Mother looked unhappy but didn't say anything until Carolyn was about to go. Then she said, Carolyn, we're going to have a visitor to tea tonight. In fact, you can call her in now. She's in the sitting room. Carolyn's face went red. Mum, her tone had suddenly changed. The table is not set for visitors. No, but it's set for Mother. Can't I go and arrange it better? It's too late now. Please call our visitor in. Very red-faced and shaking a little, Carolyn went into the sitting room. Mum says, will you please... She stopped. It was her teacher. Oh, no, did you hear what I've been... Carolyn stopped again and burst into tears. I'm sorry my little Carolyn is not the same at home as she is at school, said teacher quietly. I'm sorry, wept Carolyn. I won't ever be so nasty again. And really, to tell the truth, she never was. She had learned her lesson. After that, her mother had only one Carolyn to live with. And she was a happy Carolyn. and girls, it's Auntie Cecily. It's great to have you back again as we continue the reading of my book, Libby and His Bush Friends. Chapter 14, Libby and the Eyedropper. We collected Libby from the veterinary clinic on our way home from work. Before long, it was time for him to have his evening dose of medicine. I filled the glass dropper with the strawberry-flavoured liquid just as the vet had instructed. 
After I squirted the correct dose into the corner of Libby's mouth, he licked the end of the tube and looked for more. The vet said you would like this. He knows how to get you to take your medicine, I told Libby, pleased that the job was so easy. Come on, Libby. You were so good at taking your medicine. You can come for a ride on my shoulder for a while, offered Barry, leaning his shoulder towards the shelf where Libby was sitting. Libby didn't need a second invitation. He stepped off the shelf onto Barry's shoulder and contentedly licked his whiskers clean of any trace of strawberry-flavoured liquid. When it was time for us to retire for the night, we had to break the news to Libby that he was confined to quarters. I'm sorry, Libby, but we can't risk letting you outside tonight, I informed him. We know you're not going to like being shut up for the night, but it's the vet's orders. We have to keep you in a cage for a few days to ensure that we can find you when you need to have your medicine, added Barry. We had a large, comfortable dog cage that gave an animal of Libby's size plenty of room to move around in. We made it comfortable at one end with soft towels and placed some apple in the cage. Come on, Libby, into the cage, I said, lifting him from Barry's shoulder and placing him in the cage. Libby was unconcerned about being in the cage while he was attending to the piece of apple. Then he suddenly realised he was confined and couldn't get out. Libby wanted out. He tried the door, but it wouldn't open. He paced restlessly up and down the cage, looking for a way to escape. For a few minutes, there was nothing we could do to pacify him. He bit the plastic bars in an attempt to eat his way out. Finally, he resigned himself to his fate for the night. We felt sorry for him because he couldn't understand why we had to keep him shut up like that. It's like that with us sometimes. We may not always understand why God asks us to do some things, but he is only doing what's best for us. David said in Psalm 62 verse 8, Trust in him at all times, ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God promises to protect us and take care of us if we trust him. I think Libby must have trusted us, just like we should trust God, because he was back to his normal friendly self the following morning. We gave him some grapes. He was happy to curl up in the cage and sleep for the day after his morning dose of medicine. When we came home from work later that day, we let him out of the cage. We were happy for him to wander around inside the house until our bedtime. Libby's looking much more alert tonight, observed Barry as he lifted him onto the kitchen divide shelf. See if he's interested in some avocado, I said, cutting a piece for Barry to give him. Yes, he's very interested in avocado. You're on the men, Libby, said Barry, scratching him on the back affectionately. Time for your medicine, Libby, I said, drawing the strawberry-flavoured liquid into the dropper. Libby leaned towards me as far as he could over the edge of the shelf without falling off. His nose twitched. He was anxious to get some of the sweet-tasting strawberry liquid. 
Hang on, Libby, I said, trying to hurry. It's coming. I poked the end of the dropper into his mouth and began squeezing out its contents. In a flash, Libby bolted with it up the nearest post and along the beam above. There he sat, way out of human reach, with the glass dropper hanging from his clenched teeth. Oh no, Libby, I gasped. Come back down here this instant, I demanded. But it was no use. Libby had his prize and he was going to keep it. Don't bite on that glass dropper, I called, my mind racing to work out how I could reach him. Libby's first reaction to any attempt to retrieve the glass dropper from his mouth would instinctively lead him to bite on it harder. I called Barry, who suggested enticing him down from the beam by offering him some sultanas. This always worked in the past. It was crucial that it succeed this time. Barry climbed on a chair and stretched out his sultana-filled hand as high as he could reach. Libby was momentarily distracted. He leaned over the edge of the beam towards Barry's hand. Cautiously, Barry offered some sultanas with one hand while carefully clasping the rubber end of the glass dropper with his other hand. At the instant Libby opened his mouth to take a sultana, the dropper fell safely into Barry's hand. Phew, that was close, I said, much relieved that the crisis was over. I hate to think what would have happened if Libby had bitten the tube and swallowed broken glass. Close to bedtime, we locked the doors and secured the windows. Libby sensed that he was about to be confined to quarters again. According to the vet's instructions, we were supposed to keep Libby inside for a few more days till he had completed his medication. There was only one problem. Libby was making a rapid recovery. He was more like his old self again. This meant he wanted out right out of the house. He made up his mind that he was going outside whether the vet said he could or not, and that was that. Libby investigated every door opening and window in the house that he could get to. Finding the front and back doors closed, he methodically ran from room to room trying to push through the fly screen of every open window he could find. He tried every window in the lounge room and dining room. I wish he could understand we are only trying to do what's best for him, said Barry, not wanting to see Libby in distress. But Libby continued his search for an escape route. He ran into Barry's study, then tried every bedroom window he could reach. Libby clawed at the fly screens, but fortunately they did not give way. This isn't going to work, I concluded. I think you're right, Barry agreed. All we can do is let Liberty have his freedom and pray that we are able to find him in the morning when his next dose of medicine is due. With that, we opened the back door and Libby disappeared into the darkness. It's story time, and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. 
I spent a total of 25 years out in the South Pacific Islands. While I was in the Solomon Islands, I was reminded of the fact that the pastor who had introduced me to the Adventist faith had been a missionary in the Solomon Islands, and, and I remembered much of what he had told me about the islands. He had enthused me and my brother to become missionaries to the South Pacific Islands. And so uh, I had the privilege of being able to go into the Solomon Islands. And while I was there, I received a, a letter from the elder of the church at Mondo up in uh, Renonga. It's an island in the Western Solomons. Up there, the people are very, very dark. As a matter of fact, they're so black with their skin that at night time, if you want to see them, you have to smile and make them smile. Then you could see their white teeth and you knew where they were. But uh, they were wonderful people. Most of my dearest friends to this day are people of the Solomon Islands. And uh, while I was in the headquarters in Honiara, I received a letter from the elder of the Mondo Church. And it rang a bell. I thought, Mondo, Mondo, I know that name. Where does that come from? And so I uh, thought, yes, Pastor Peacock. He's the man that told us so many stories. He's the man that started the work up in Mondo Church. And I wrote back to them and said, yes, I'd be thrilled to come up there and uh, uh, dedicate this new church that you built there. And uh, I prepared for it. And when the time came, I took a flight up to Western Solomons. And then we got on the mission ship and sailed round to the Renonga Island and up the east coast to Mondo. And as I was there, I was picturing all the things that Pastor Peacock had told me about the Western Solomons. And I could almost picture him sailing up these very waters where I had now had the privilege to arrive. And sure enough, we came to the village of Mondo. It was a village which had no place where you could uh, anchor for the ship and so we had to get on a canoe and go to a little creek that ran down into the into the uh, ocean there just out from Mondo. I could see the new church on the hill and so this is her new church. They had no church there except a thatch building until this time and so as we got in the canoe, we went across, and I pictured Pastor Peacock walking up over those same stones in that, that little creek and then walking up the hill to the Mondo Church. It was a thrilling time to be there, and there was a big crowd, a lot of Adventists, all beautifully dressed and ready for Sabbath. We had a wonderful Sabbath there, and when it came time to preach, I told the story of Pastor Peacock and how he had led me to become a Seventh-day Adventist and how he had told me stories about Mondo. He was the one that began the work there in Mondo, I said. He told me how he used to come in the canoe and come up that same little creek where I'd come up, and he'd walk on those stones and come ashore there, and he'd walk up that hill and he'd run evangelistic meeting in the open air, and how people would come there, and he could see them sitting there with their spears and their uh, hammers, their wooden knobs for killing people. You see, in those days they were headhunters, this was uh, before Christianity had even come there. And he was introducing Christianity to them. And I said, what a privilege it is for me, having been taught by this man to come to the very place where he had started the work. And so uh, as I preached the sermon, I could see these people, young and old, listening to every word that I gave. And then we had a gathering together after for a feast and more discussions. And when it was all over... I had two elderly men come to me and they said, Pastor, we want to talk with you. I said, oh, yes, what's the situation? 
always said, we knew Pastor Peacock when we were just young men. We were just in our early 20s when he was here. And as a matter of fact, we had our spears and our nullanas, our, our, our hammers. We planned to kill him. He was going to destroy our God. Our gods were telling us we had to kill him. And when we hadn't done that, others would do it because they were all sitting up there waiting for his meeting. And so uh, we were waiting in the hedges and the, and the branches of the trees until we saw him starting to walk up and then we planned to go and run up behind him and club him to death. But unfortunately, every time he came up out of that creek, the two white men in white clothes on either side of him, one on the left and one on the right, and they would walk with him quietly up the hill and we were scared. We were, they had no spears, they had no clubs, but they were just so big and strong and so bright light. We didn't dare no go, go near them. And we would sit up there and wait for him to come down. And as soon as he would start to come down, those two white men would come beside him and walk him right down until he got in the canoe and go out to his ship and he'd sail away. Then we We did that time and time again, every time he came to run meetings there in that place. Finally, the message got to us and we accepted it. And we believe that those two men were God's protection over us. I said, I believe that too. I believe that you were being... He was seeing angels that God was protecting their man because he said his promises are his angels will protect us and keep us from harm or danger. And it was a thrill for me to be on Mondo at that time and to see the very place where the man of God that led me to Christ brought me to an understanding of truth and being now able to be a missionary. He had injected into my heart, into my soul, the desire to take the gospel to the people who didn't know the truth. And... Uh, Mondo has become a very precious place for me. Today I spend a lot of time in raising funds from my family and friends to send Bibles out to the, to the South Pacific. And over the past 15 years, we've averaged about 12,000 Bibles a year to the South Pacific, from Papua New Guinea to uh, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, Samoa. These are some of the places that have received the Bibles because... We want the truth of God to go out to those people. There are many yet that sit in darkness out there, but little by little they're receiving the words of God, and God is providing that uh, knowledge of truth for them too. Each one of us can have a part, and I just pray that if you're blessed by these stories, that it will lead you to become a missionary for God, no matter where you are, whether it's in your home, in your village, in your town, or whether you're taken across the seas into foreign islands the Lord will make you missionaries for him. The Lord bless you. Hi girls and boys, Sophie Lee here. I'm so glad you have come back to join me in listening to another segment of the book, Ellen, The Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Chapter 9. Ellen Sees the New Earth Ellen had never felt happier than after she told the believers about her dreams. She had done what God wanted her to do. But some Adventists didn't believe God really talked to Ellen. Don't believe a word Ellen Harmon says, they said. Satan gives her those dreams. God could never use someone who didn't finish even fourth grade. Other people said how wicked of her to say that God speaks to her. It is the devil, not God. 
When Ellen heard these terrible lies, she felt sad. She wanted people to like her just as much as anyone does. It hurt her even worse when some of her friends began to wonder if her dreams were from Satan. She felt so sad she got very sick. Her parents asked other Adventists to come and pray for her. They knelt around her bed and asked God to make her well. And he did. He healed her instantly. Everyone felt the Holy Spirit in the room. The next moment, he gave Ellen another vision right there in front of her friends. Glory, 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 Ellen's voice rang out. She no longer saw the people around her in the room. Instead, she felt herself surrounded with brilliant light of God and holy angels. Then she found herself in heaven with Jesus and many angels. But her friends in the room were still watching her. Her eyes were wide open and she never blinked. Sometimes she spoke to someone they couldn't see. Although they couldn't see what Ellen was seeing or hear what Ellen was hearing, they noticed something else right away. She's not breathing, someone whispered. Look. That's right, Father Harmon said. Ellen never takes a single breath while she's seeing God's vision. This is one way that we know her visions come from God. God keeps her alive even though she doesn't breathe. Thank you, God, one of them prayed out loud, for allowing us to see Ellen while she's having a vision. Now we know we can trust Ellen, another said. Now we know that her dreams come from God. Meanwhile, Ellen was seeing heaven and Jesus. Follow me, Jesus called. Ellen and all the people and angels followed him down through the skies to the earth. The moment Jesus' feet touched the top of a mountain, it divided right in half. The two sides moved away until there was a wide, flat plain in front of them. Look up, several voices called. Ellen looked and saw the glorious holy city, the new Jerusalem. The city, the great city, everyone called. It's coming down from God out of heaven. Come, Jesus said as the city settled down onto the plain. Come with me. I'll show you the new earth where you will live. They followed him and soon discovered he'd changed this old world into a beautiful new earth. He'd even made beautiful country homes for his people. Some people went into their new homes, took off their crowns and laid them on golden shelves. Then they went outside to care for their gardens. A brilliant light shone around their heads and they sang joyful songs of praises to God. Ellen looked around and saw no ugly weeds in the gardens, so no one had to pull them. None of the plants had thorns to hurt their fingers either. And there weren't even any harmful insects that would eat or ruin the beautiful vegetables and flowers. Come now and see my holy temple on Mount Zion, Jesus called. Immediately, everyone followed him. Ellen walked along and picked fragrant flowers. They will never fade, she sang. They passed a field of tall green grass. The breeze that waved it back and forth, making it look like gold, then silver. How proudly it waves to King Jesus, Ellen thought. As they walked on, Ellen was thrilled with one wonderful sight after another. She saw lions and tiny lambs resting side by side on the tender green grass. Leopards and wolves played together and some of the animals walked beside them. Mount Zion was just in front of them and the glorious temple was on top of it. Seven hills nearby were coloured brightly with coloured roses. Ellen saw little children climb or use their wings to fly to the top of the hills to pick the never-fading flowers. Jesus showed them his glorious temple. Then he left and went back to the holy city. Come, my people, he soon called. You have suffered for me. You have done my will. You have been faithful to me. Come and eat the supper I have ready for you. I will serve you. 
Hallelujah, hallelujah, glory, Alan shouted with the others and they made their way to him. The dining table made of silver stretched out for many miles, but with her newly made eyes, Alan could see from one end to the other. Colourful fruit covered the tables, grapes, figs, pomegranates, peaches, cherries, strawberries and every other kind of fruit. High piles of almonds and other nuts added to the beautiful sight. Everything looked so delicious. It looked far better than any food Ellen had ever seen. Please, may I have some fruit? she asked Jesus. He looked at her with his loving smile. Not now, Ellen. Anyone who eats the fruit of heaven does not go back to earth. But Ellen, if you are faithful, it won't be long until you eat from the fruit of the tree of life. Ellen, I need you to go back to earth and tell the people there what I have shown you. An angel took her in his arms and carried her gently back to this earth. Then she felt herself take a long breath. The others in the room noticed it too. Look, she's beginning to breathe. As they watched, Ellen took another breath, then another, as her empty lungs filled with air. Ellen glanced around the room. It seemed so dark after seeing the light of heaven. She could barely see the people there. It's dark, she murmured, so dark. Definitely the most beautiful reason to visit the frozen part of the Earth. Is the Aurora a rainbow, Ranger Dan? It's God's frozen rainbow. It looks like a curtain made out of pretty lights. See the bottom of the curtains? They're getting brighter. Soon they're going to turn red and blue and purple. Oh, look, Ranger Dan. It's moving up high into the sky. And there's swirly light pinwheels. That's right. And pretty soon these colours will fade into a warm green glow. It looks so beautiful, Ranger Dan. Oh, you're seeing something unique, Mrs Tammy, because no two auroras are ever the same. When I lift my eyes and look at God's rainbows in the sky, everything else around me seems to disappear, Ranger Dan. It's almost like I can see Jesus' face. Sky, see the rainbow. God. 
Girls and boys, Auntie Nat here. It's so good that you have come back to join me in reading the Bible. Have you got your Bibles ready? I'm reading from the New King James Version, and today we're going to read out of the book of Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. So, boys and girls, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness and spend time with God with fasting and prayer. But Satan took this opportunity to go in and tempt Jesus when he was weak and hungry. Let's continue to read in verse 3. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So here Satan is tempting Jesus with appetite. It was appetite that made Eve in the Garden of Eden sin, and here Satan is trying it on Jesus. But Jesus uses the word of God to defeat Satan at his own game. Jesus says it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This scripture comes from Deuteronomy 8.3. Boys and girls, if there is one thing out of all this that I want you to get, this is it. There is power in the word. If Jesus used the word to fight Satan, so should we. He did this for an example for us. Let's continue in verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, boys and girls, Jesus uses the word of God to have victory over Satan. It's interesting in verse 6 that Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God... We know from verse 317 that God himself declared that Jesus was indeed his son before Jesus, John and the multitude watching by the river Jordan. So when Satan tells him to throw himself off the temple to prove he is the son of God, Jesus tells him, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, referring back to Exodus 17:7, when the children of Israel tempted God in the wilderness, demanding to know that he was with them when he had already performed many miracles before them. Let's continue in verse 8. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Again, Jesus was using the word of God to defeat Satan. You can go to Deuteronomy 6.13 and 10.20. Satan wanted Christ to surrender to him, but Christ had come to die on the cross for our sins. He had us on his mind. He had to be sinless and perfect to atone for our sins. If Satan could trip Jesus up and cause him to sin, the whole plan of salvation would have come crashing down. Satan wanted Jesus to give up and take the easy way out. But Jesus was not going to let Satan do that. Let's read verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So Satan could not stay in the presence of quoting God's word. 
He had to leave. Jesus collapsed in exhaustion and the angels of God ministered to him. Jesus passed this test for us. Remember, boys and girls, there is power in the word. Quoting scripture in our everyday living of walking with Jesus is a powerful tool God has left us. Ephesians 6.10 onwards tells us about the armour of God. We are to put on every day to help fight the devil. Verse 17 talks about the word of God as being the sword. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is more powerful than a two-edged sword. Read your Bibles every day and draw strength from the words. Auntie Nat would like to pray for you now. Dear Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to this earth for an example he left for us on how to live our lives. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for our Bibles. We thank you, Lord, for the power that the word can be to the, to the way we live our life. We thank you, Lord, that you have left us many tools that we can fight the devil. We ask, Lord, that you please be with us, take care of us, be with the children especially, Lord. Help them, Lord, to understand what they're reading. Help them to read their Bibles every day and just be with them, their mums and dads and their grandparents. And we just ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Boys and girls, it's Dr. John again with some more jungle stories. These are stories that are up to 100 years old, written by Eric B. Hare. This one is called The House That Was Baptized. Her real name was Noor Kyati, but we called her Happiness. She was one of the first to befriend our mission. She came one day with her daughter, but being rather timid, contented herself with peering through the trees at the white god worshippers. There beneath the coconut tree she saw the dispensary mama, Miss Gibbs, wash a man's hand and bandage it up so carefully. They are such kind people, aren't they? She said to her daughter as they gazed on. The next time we'll go right up to them and see if we can talk with them. And that night... Away off in the village, the wise old heads wagged. You'd better be careful. You'd better be careful, they said to her. You know the spirits and the devils don't like us to go to the god worshippers' place. And if any evil comes to our village, we'll put the blame on you. So you'd better be careful. You'd better be careful. But they are good people, she said, and I will go to see them. Upstairs in her house was a spirit altar with its vase for flowers, the plate to put the rice on before every meal, its bell to be struck as the offering was placed, and a prayer muttered. Ever since the house had been built, she had been careful to keep up the spirit worship. Right underneath the altar on the floor, how many times the family had gathered to offer the chicken or the pig to the devil himself. But now how bitterly she remembered that a few years ago, during a sickness among the cattle, all their offerings and worship had proved useless, and they lost all their cattle. And as she had thought upon these things, she recalled the happy face 
of the white god worshipping mama and she said, I will go again, I will. She did too. And the next time she was far more pleased to find that god worshippers could talk her language. I am so busy, said the dispensary nurse. I wish I could get a nice young woman to come and help me. I wonder if your big girl would like to come. Well, happiness didn't mind if her big girl did come to help the kind mama. And then you should have seen those old wise heads away back in the village wagging again. Halakin took readily to her work. She quickly learned to read, and after a few years, she said, Oh, Tara, I've just got to be baptized. The Bible says so, and I know Mother doesn't mind either. She hardly ever worships the spirits now indeed. When I go home last, I saw that the chickens had all found their way up to the altar and had eaten everything all up. So the big daughter was baptized, and we were all so happy. But away back in the village, the wise old heads wagged and wags. Did you hear? Did you hear? Those god worshippers took that woman's daughter and they dipped her right down underneath the water. Now they will come to our village and they will catch us all and dip us all down under the water. What shall we do? What shall we do? And they called the yellow-robed priest and the elders of the village. They cursed poor happiness and her children to three generations and cast her out of the village. Happiness left her children in school and went across to another valley where she had a small farm and was safe. But the house, now without anyone to live in it, became haunted. They say that at night the offended spirits came down and lived there, and strange stories floated everywhere of weird shouting and squealing and things rushing in and around the house. In terror, the wise heads wagged once more. I told you so. We knew this would happen. Make her come and pull it down herself, they said. How gladly they would have destroyed it themselves, but they were too scared that the devils would surely destroy anyone who dared lay their hands on it. So they sent across to the other valley and told happiness that she had to come and pull her old house down. Poor happiness. Heavy-hearted happiness, the trials came thick and fast. What shall I do, Thara, she said. Oh, what shall I do? Why don't you sell us your house posts, we said. We need some posts to build another house for the boys to live in. Oh, Tara, will you buy them? Do you truly have to build another house? And together we went to the village elders to make arrangements. They were delighted. They didn't care what the devils did to the god worshippers. The more the better, the quicker the sooner. And when they saw our little army of boys with crowbars and hammers, the whole village turned out to look on and see what would happen. They heard the boys singing as they pounded at the rafters and as they dug up the posts. And when at last the work was finished, they were all left gazing open-eyed. The devils had no power over the god worshippers. They were still alive. Wonderful. In a few days, the posts and the boards were all carted down to the riverbank just opposite the station. And there remained but one problem to be solved. 
How could we get those posts across the river? They were too big for the canoe and too long for the motor launch, but some would float. And by tying them together like a big raft, we were able to pull them across the river to the mission. And do you know, boys and girls, as that old haunted house was being dragged across the river, it was baptized. It surely was. It was in the water. In about 10 days, it was rebuilt and became the boys' hall. And at night, instead of the wild screeching of demons, you could hear sweet gospel songs as Peter called his boys together for evening worship. There was just one part of the old house that we didn't rebuild, the spirit altar. We took it and threw it into the river and let it float down with the stream. And in its place, Peter put his bookcase right underneath where the family used to gather to worship the devils. Peter had his study table and right in the center of the study table, Peter kept his Bible. Oh, boys and girls, that gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Put that blessed word into the heart of a man and it will make him into a new person. The years passed by and the two children left in school grew up. Their hearts were moved. They longed to be Christians. They wrote and told happiness their hearts' desires. She came down to see them and trembling came to me and said, Oh, Tara, you have baptized my big girls and you have converted my old house and now these two children want to be baptized Oh, I must be baptized with them. I wish you could pay her a visit. There across the river from the mission station, she has a garden, and you ought to see her bringing in her tithe month by month. You should hear her tell how the tigers come down past her house to drink in the river. But I'm not frightened, she says. It's only the wicked people that are frightened. And when evening comes, and I see across the river the little light... And hear the breezes playing in the trees, it seems to me they are saying, Hers is the kingdom of heaven. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the girl with two angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD Frozen Chosen on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Just the time I need him 
Shepherd Divine, sung by Gavin Chitalia and the children. Before that, Auntie Cecily sang, God will take care of you and he lives. 
Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of another Children's Story Hour. We thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have enjoyed the program. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour. <laughs>